Fis Germa, I guess, Pajaru. Just to throw you all. In other words, good afternoon and welcome. I, I just happen to be a Gaelic speaker, and I suppose my reputation is better known as Gaelic poet. But um, my career as a writer really began in Glasgow about 40 years ago. And I, I remember showing a sheaf of poems to a lecturer who had just been transferred from uh, Queen's University Belfast to Glasgow University, a man called Philip Hobsbawm. Uh, the late, now sad to say, Philip Hobsbawm. And Philip had already made a bit of a reputation for himself when he was at Cambridge and then moved to London. He got together a bunch of other aspiring writers, if you like, or less well-known writers at the time, like um, Edward Lucy Smith, George Macbeth, Peter Porter, Peter Redgrove, and uh, the group, as they called themselves, debated whether to let a big shuffling guy in um, sandals and uh, bicycle clips into the group, a man called Ted Hughes. They then moved, Philip moved to Belfast, as I say, and uh, his group there had people like Michael Longley, Derek Mahan, uh, a 17-year-old lab technician by the name of Bernard McLaverty, and uh, an obscure Irish poet by the name of Seamus Heaney. So when he came to Glasgow, he gradually got a wee group of, again, new or obscure Glasgow writers like um, Tom Leonard, Liz Lochhead, James Kelman, and Alistair Gray. So I met Alistair, and myself among <laughs> other uh, less, less uh, noted. Anyway, um, Alistair is a man of many talents. I, he's an artist. I don't know whether I came across your visual work before the, 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 po the poems and the, the plays and the, the prose. But through Philip's group, obviously, I got to know Alistair, the writer. He is a poet, he's a novelist, he's a playwright. And in fact, my abiding memory is of Alistair Gray bringing in, every time it was his, we, we took turns to be in the hot seat, and every time Alistair was, his work was up for discussion, the work was passages from an unpublished novel. I, and uh, it took quite some time, actually, I think after, before the, the novel did eventually appear in print. It was a wee book called Lanark. I, and uh, Alistair obviously had gone on to do many other things since. Um, I, I was aware at the time also of Alistair's playwriting. He'd done some work for television, for radio, for stage and so on, which is part of the reason for his celebrating today, he's celebrating this collection of his plays. And uh, Alistair phoned me as someone who lives on this side of the, the country and uh, an old acquaintance, would I be prepared to chair this session? And I said, yes, I'd be delighted, Alistair, would be honoured. And then he went on to ask, would I be prepared to read uh, from one of the scripts? It's not the big book, but the little one, Beyond Fleck, which is Alistair's take on Faust and uh, we would read the prologue. And uh, Alistair asked me if I would read the part of God. <laughs> so I said, uh, that's a nice promotion, Alistair. But he assured me it's quite a small part, albeit important, <laughs> which I was relieved with. But uh, Alistair being Alistair, uh, he's, uh, in the course of the last couple of days decided that we might come to 
of like the prologue, but uh, we're going to instead um, have a go at a short play that was written originally for radio called Voices in the Dark. And uh, what differs with this one is that there are three main characters in it, one of them female. So we're now required to ask whether there is in the audience an actress <laughs> who might have knowledge of the works of Alistair Gray. And we live Well, in the fear there might be about 50 hands go up, but uh, there is a hand over there, yes. So, <laughs> this, of course, is totally spontaneous, not at all. <laughs> I, I, um, I seem to be mic'd as well. <laughs> so, this is Estrid Barton. Yes. Hello. Alistair actually asked if Gerda Stevenson, who, to whom I married, could come along, but Gerda's working in Dundee. But she said, of all the actors you could think of, Esther would be ideal because uh, she's a very fine actress and uh, is capable of doing more than one voice, which uh, <laughs> if we get to the end of the show. I'm actually a member of Equity myself. I, I became a member of Equity uh, in order to fall off cliffs on radio in Gaelic. <laughs> And uh, I describe myself as being of the John Wayne school of acting. You might change the name of the character, but it's still John Wayne. So uh, I will do my best. God will be me rather than... Anyway. Uh, I don't know what... I did say to Alistair, my, my introduction would be one such that if I made any errors of observation or... Um, recollection, he was free to um, to heckle me, but he hasn't so far, so I, I think we should maybe just resume the reading, or begin the reading. And uh, I will sit down. Uh, it, it makes sense for the three of us to be alongside each other, so we will commence. <clears throat> I am not a modest person. Um, I have the main part in... Uh, <laughs> in the play and play extract we're going to have. <coughs> However... Actually, you did ask me, Alistair, if I would introduce the, the voices in the dark. So yes. I should. Mm -hmm. uh, we have done a bit of scripting of this event. I, it was intended, as I mentioned earlier, actually as a play for radio, a play for three voices. Uh, but near to the end, there will be other voices coming in, plus sound effects which will be provided by the readers, will be provided by the leaders that have the skill to do such things. Uh, and it's called Voices in the Dark. The three characters, the main characters are Rudy, the elderly alcoholic president of Fredonia, F-R-E-D-O-N-I-E. I told Alistair actually, I, I visited Fredonia, uh, which is a village of 12,000 people in northeastern New York State. But uh, any of you who know the Marx Brothers film Duck Soup will know that there's a Fridonia with two E's. And actually it got its name from the fact that the Marx Brothers played the opera house in the village of Fredonia were absolutely disastrous and their revenge on the village of Fredonia was to put it into the, um, into the film. Alistair is not revenging anyone. So the next person is Vera, a rebel. And uh, then there's Grosch, mafia boss and former state policeman speaks with a Highland accent. 
proceed, Alistair. Sorry a bit. A large single bed with bedside tables holding tumblers, bottles of vodka, a telephone and bedside lamp. There is also a window behind closed curtains. Darkness. Sound of glass breaking. A window stealthily opened. A figure holding a gun in one hand and torch switched on in the other creeps from behind the curtains, sits beside the bed and switches on the lamp. She is a woman wearing combat gear who points the gun at the sleeper's head. Shh. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Wake up, you old fool! <laughs> Wake up! Impossible, impossible. The sleeping pills I am given no longer work, it is true. So I reinforced them with alcohol. What time is it? 3 a.m. Well, before midnight, on top of my pills, I consumed a bottle of 90% proof absolute alcohol, so you cannot possibly have wakened me at 3 a.m. Go away. Open your eyes. This hard, cold thing pressing your ear Ouch! is the barrel of a gun. Yes, it feels like one. But dreams sometimes contain strong sensations. I recently dreamed I was eating a buttered roll, the loveliest experience of my life. A memory of the birthday present my mother gave me when I was two or three. That was during the German occupation. Nearly everyone was hungry then, even though the Jews and gypsies had been removed. My mother... My mother must have loved me a lot to give me a whole buttered roll and not kept half for herself. Leave me alone. Was that not more real than the dreamed taste of your mother's buttered roll? No, it was not. Ah, uh, yes, yes, that would convince me that I'm awake. If this house was not surrounded by guards and electronic alarm systems and all kinds of clever protective devices installed by Americans who are the smartest people in the world at that kind of thing, I regret disappointing you, my dear, but you must be a hallucination because nothing else could have penetrated the impregnable security fence that protects me from... Sir, sir, are you all right? Of course I'm all right! Can the president of Fredonia not indulge in a bit of Shakespearean soliloquy by talking to himself without a goddamn bodyguard questioning him? I have all the security I need. More security than I could ever want. Avaunt and quit my door. Abspawn, abscond, begone, shog off, shut up, retreat. Have a heart, as the Yanks say. Have pity on your soul, as Dostoevsky says. Leave me in peace. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Yes, sir. But I don't want you to hear me. F off, as the English say. Do you hear me? Have you gone? <laughs> He's gone, my dear. I begin to think you're something more than a sexual fantasy. <laughs> you're a smart old bastard. You knew I'd shoot you if you'd called him in. Why should you not shoot me? I'm useless. Useless to myself, useless to my nation, useless to the world. But a tyrant to your people. <laughs> you do me too much honor. 
I drove that servile security guard away because I was enjoying our conversation about appearance and reality. Do you know that nowadays in Western Europe and the USA, postmodern deconstructionist philosophy declares that all external realities are mere opinions, all different but all equally valid? <laughs> Decadent bourgeois obfuscation. Oh, I love these old Marxist phrases. In 1944, when the Germans retreated and the Red Army took over, nobody cheered the regime they set up more than I did. I was an enthusiastic young communist medical student. I made long speeches about capitalist lackeys, new fascist warmongers, bourgeois hyena cannibals and vampires gorged with the blood and sweat of the proletariat. I hailed the coming day when the revolution would be complete and the state would wither away. These words rang in my ears like trumpets must have sounded in the ears of crusaders galloping out to exterminate the infidels. Please join me in bed. You dirty old sod. Oh, oh don't mistake me. Uh, since Comrade Grolsch put electric currents through my testicles, I've been completely impotent. So the pressure of a friendly woman's body does not greatly excite me, but it would greatly soothe me. And nobody has soothed me like that since the old regime arrested me. Time I had another drink. Uh, have some too. Certainly not. <clears throat> you must have a reason for breaking in here. And you want to ask me something? Yes. I want to know <clears throat> why you have betrayed us. Betrayed who? The people of Fredonia. Surely they have let me down. Not all of them, of course, but the professional people, the lawyers and the academics and administrators all seem perfectly content with how Grolsch and his pals are running everything. Who's Grolsch? <laughs> he must be as smart as ever if even political dissidents know that he and his pals now run the Fredonian Republic. He always knew it was wise to stay out of the limelight. He never let the old party bosses promote him higher than the rank of Deputy State Security Commissar. So when the communist regime collapsed, only those he had personally tortured knew what a criminal he was. And even we didn't want to remember that. I suppose you belong to a minority dissident political opposition. We call ourselves the Decembrists. Was uh, that not the name of the group who planned to assassinate the Tsar of all the Russias in 1820-something? Yes. At first, we wanted a name recalling the great so Soviet revo revolution of 1917, the one that started going bad under Lenin, went rotten under Stalin, and collapsed under Gorbachev. But we decided to call ourselves after an earlier group of revolutionaries. Who failed? Alas, yes. But Pushkin nearly joined them, and Tolstoy approved of them. <laughs> so you broke in here to assassinate the Tsar of Fredonia. You nearly succeeded. I might have died of a heart attack. Well, I didn't want to kill you. I once loved you. You were my hero when I was a tiny girl. Oh, dear. Oh, that speech you made in the 70s gave hope to everyone in Fredonia. My mother and father heard it over the radio with tears streaming down their faces. You said the Republic of Fredonia would now take her own unique path of democratic socialism and all censorship would be abolished and the people everywhere would be allowed to say what they thought about anything. Hail, hail, Fredonia, land of the free. Oh, for all that 
and all that. It's coming yet for all that. That man to man the wide world o'er shall brothers be for all that. I am a woman. In a true democracy, women count as men. Oh, count me out. <laughs> Why? You retracted everything you said in your greatest speech. I, I was an idiot. Uh, uh, what's your name, dear? Vera. Vera Zazulich. Vera, I was not a liar at first. I believed every word of that first speech. You see, under the bad old communist regimes, leaders kept announcing that things were about to change and improve. Even Chairman Mao announced that a thousand flowers would be allowed to contend. No sensible communist disagreed with them, of course. They just carried on as usual. I was such a simpleton that I believed that Khrushchev's announcement of yet another thaw would... It was Brezhnev. So it was. I was then commissar in charge of national health and chiefly gave orders that every political dissenter who had been registered insane should be released from our lunatic asylums. I announced this over the radio as a reason for public rejoicing. A few hours later, I was strapped to an operating table with electric wires attached to parts of me that, that, that I will not embarrass a young woman by mentioning. You've already told me what parts. I must be senile if I told you that, but yes, it happened. So a year later, I announced that my previous speech had been the result of a mental breakdown. I said I was retiring from politics for the good of my health, and that was certainly true. I was kept under house arrest until the Russian Empire collapsed. We knew you'd been coerced into making that speech, and someone called Grosh coerced you. Uh, uh, Grosh isn't totally evil. Like many sadists, he's a good family man, with many wives and five times as many children as the majority. And many more children than he can support out of his private fortune, even nowadays. So he has not completely dismantled our welfare state. Uh, Single-parent mothers still receive family benefits. Our National Health Service has not been wholly privatised. Being a doctor, I was very proud of it. Our health service was as good as the British one in its early days, and infinitely superior to anything in the USA. Um, is it still functioning, my little Decemberist? Uh, don't change the subject. We elected you president in 1990 because you were the only politician we knew who had tried to defend democracy under the bad old communist regime. Oh, we still loved you, still trusted you. I remember the speech I made then as if it was yesterday. I could not stop... Um, um, sorry. Uh, uh, wrong page. <laughs> Ah, here it is. <coughs> uh, I yes, I remember the speech I made as if it was yesterday. Fredonia will become the first truly democratic socialist state. Every small business will now be owned by the family running it. The collective farms will be broken up and the fields returned to the farmers. Every large state enterprise will become a cooperative owned and managed by its own workers. Transport, water, energy, mineral resources, broadcasting, education, and above all else, justice will be maintained by the people for the benefit of the people. I sounded wonderful. No wonder they cheered and cheered and cheered. Oh, fraud, hypocrite, whited sepulchre. Oh, why did you go back on all that? I never did. 
That's why they keep re-electing me. Oh, surely you know the election results are faked. Oh, I suppose they must be with old Grunch in charge. Well, why has everything you promised to defend in 1992 disappeared? Everything in Fredonia now belongs to foreign global corporations and the international mafia. Nearly half of our people today are, are drug addicts and vandals. Crime, disease, death and police custody are steadily increasing. The streets are full of beggars. For most people, things are worse than they were under the rotten old communist dictatorship. Yes, under that regime there was widespread social equality for everyone who was not a party official. It was equality of scarcity, of course. Shoppers had to stand in queues for hours, and the majority seldom had more than two or three really satisfying meals per week. But nobody starved, and we had no beggars because nobody was penniless. We had full employment because everyone without a productive job was being paid by the state to spy on everyone else. Are you defending the regime that screwed your balls off? No. Then what went wrong with Fredonia when you were elected president after all these fine speeches? I don't exactly know. I signed some documents that I thought made it legal for farmers to own their own fields and plumbers to own their own shops and then swarmed uh, middlemen, uh, brokers. There's an unpronounceable French name for them. Entrepreneurs. These uh, entry pruners swarmed in and asset stripped the entire nation. I could not stop them. Nobody else tried to. I kept announcing that this should not be happening and demanding that people in responsible jobs stop it. You did. That is why some of the working class still trust you. The speeches of an incompetent old president cannot change history when all his lawyers and judges and civil servants, all the elected MPs, everyone in his government and in the opposition are working privately for international corporations while being openly paid out of the public purse. I become what I am now. A hollow figurehead more useless than a scarecrow, because scarecrows at least keep predatory birds away from grain that people need for their bread. I was, I am, a sham, Vera. You're right to despise me. The phone rings, playing the first bars of the Fredonian national anthem. Bum, ba, boom, ba, no, sorry. Um, bum, bum, ba, bum, bum, land of the free. Pick some phone. Yes? Rudy? Yes? This is Grolsch. Why? I want a word with you. Uh, see it? I must see it to your face at once. Now. Uh, why? A national emergency. Very serious. Very urgent. Where exactly are you, Grolsch? Outside your bedroom door. At four in the morning? <laughs> What a busy bee you are. And now I come to think of it, that's the usual hour when security forces grab a government's political enemies. I hear that the British police now arrests asylum seekers at this hour. Please, I'm not here to arrest you, but please, we must now talk. I'll call you in when I have adjusted my clothing. <clears throat> uh, you can come into bed or get under it. I, I suggest in. Rudy pulls back the bedclothes. Vera slips in and under. He covers her and raises his knees to make a tent over her. <clears throat> Enter, Comrade Grolsch! Grolsch, a gloomy, well-dressed businessman, enters and sits beside the bed. Um, a care for a drink? Yes, please. 
Well? This building has been the president of Fredonia's private residence since the days of Rupert Firefly in the 1930s. Even then, this was the president's bedroom. Did it never occur to you that state security would have this room bugged? It's <laughs> as strange as it may seem, it never did. <laughs> uh, I know that Vera Zatulich, leader of the Decembrist group, is either in bed with you or under it, or behind those curtains with a gun in her hand that she will shortly point at my head. Yes, Mr. Grosh. It seems you are largely responsible for the terrible state of our nation. So if you call in your henchmen, I will not hesitate to put a bullet in your brain. Had I feared that, I would have sent them in before me. A sudden clean death from a bullet in my brain is the least thing I fear nowadays. <laughs> the poor fellow must be in serious trouble. Who is after you, Grosh? Will they attach electrodes to your genitals, or just work all over you with pliers and a blowtorch? Don't joke. Yes, I am in trouble, and a deal with you two may be the best way out of it. And I promise both of you will benefit hugely by playing ball with me, because Grosh is a man of his word. Oh, I'm past playing god ball games, Grosh, but go on, go on, you're beginning to interest us. <laughs> your health. <laughs> uh, Vera, can I not persuade you no. to... I wish I had left Fredonia in 1989, but it was never easy to take effective currency out of a left-wing regime. Swiss, Swiss nationality could always be obtained by right-wing town politicians and corrupt Western businessmen who had built up a big Zurich bank account. But the old communist states were notoriously stingy. Then came the liberal revolution that made you president, Rudy, and everything in Fredonia was for sale. I admit that went to my head. It was an intoxicating time. Never in the history of capitalism has so much been sold to so many by so few. I sold coal mines, copper mines, schools, reservoirs, power stations, drugs, justice, everything. I lost count of the many things I sold and now, now it appears that I sold some of them twice or three times to completely different international organizations. But Grosh is a man of his word. He must have discovered some way of compensating three different global corporations for buying the same power stations. Oh, it can be done. Yes, there is a way of doing it that will delight you, Rudy, and you, Vera Zazalich. The liberal revolution, my friends, has now obviously gone too far. It hugely enriched a new middle class at the expense of the workers and the poor. But now a trade recession is starting to hurt professional people. So it's time for everyone to enjoy a new political deal, achieved through a new political party. You, Rudy, must lead it and remain our president because you represent the decent face of old-time communism. Under communist dictatorship, only you had the courage to openly defend democracy and to suffer for it. He remembers my sufferings, Vera. How kind he is. You, Vera, the Decembrist, represent all those young idealists who still have faith in liberty, equality, fraternity. The new party will put you in charge of education, broadcasting, sport, culture, fashion, anything you like. You can be Home Secretary and create a Ministry of Feminism. And I, must emerge, and I must emerge from the shadows and support your new political platform, the platform of the New Dealers Party. I would be responsible for finance, banking, boring commercial matters beneath the attention of high-souled idealists. And you think such an alliance will save your soul? To hell with my soul. I want to die of advanced old age. 
Uh, tell us about this new political platform. Oh, it's old as well as new. It's what you once wanted, welfare state socialism. The New Dealers will start to re-nationalise things that were privatised in the 1990s. Starting with the power stations. Of course. So the three different global corporations who now own them will be compensated out of Fredonian taxpayers' money. Oh, our new government would not last a week if it's not trusted by the International Monetary Fund. <laughs> I think I'll have a drink after all. <laughs> what is this big joke you laugh at? Um, you... We don't believe in you. You've lurked in the shadows so long, Grolsch, that you've become one. You are no longer solid. You are a phantom, a ghost of the mirage of an illusion. You are both terribly wrong. I still wield power, terrible power, and can prove it. I suppose you mean the Utri Harpooners still trust you? Yes, the entrepreneurs still trust me. Also, I have important international contacts of immense strength and intelligence. The first bars of the American national anthem are heard. This is the voice of America. This message is for European Agent 87329 PQ06, otherwise known as Vladimir Grosh. Agent Grosh. You are in breach of the contract forbidding you to form new political alliances without previous CIA clearance. I had no time to inform you of the alliance I have just proposed. I only conceived it half an hour ago. But I am glad you have listened in to my modest proposal, though I did not know that this room had also been wired by the CIA. We have not wired it. We are addressing you over a new satellite system which allows us total powers of surveillance and interference everywhere at any time. Ours is the only operating system of its kind in the world. The first bars of the overture to the thieving magpie are heard. And then, not the quite the only operating system of its kind. This is the Cosa, Cosa Nostra speaking. Under Clause 312 of the CIA and Mafia International Anti-Terrorism Act. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry about that, folks. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, war on, um, yes. CIA and Mafia War on, treaty, on, on Terror Treaty. Cosa Nostra agents only need clearance from us, and our Fredonian agent Glorch received that clearance from us 20 minutes ago. A Chinese gong is struck. Bong! But Agent Glorch has not received clearance from the Chinese Central Intelligence Agency. And if I might be allowed to put in a word... You may not. I know the UK is a junior partner in our alliance, but it does seem to me that Agent Grosch has become a useful link between all of us including the Muslims. Is that not true, Grosch? No deals with the enemy. In a free market economy, surely a man may sell himself to everyone who can afford him. And the USA and China are allies. You're not at war with each other. Bong! Every nation must be prepared for every eventuality. You can say that again. Bong! Every nation must be prepared for every eventuality. 
Grosch, you had better come back to Sorrento. No way. When Grosch leaves the president's bedroom, he'll be coshed, chloroformed, rolled in a carpet, and sent for debriefing to Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo Bay. Mercy, mercy, England, England, please. Surely your renowned sense of fair play will come to the age of poor old Grolsch, your most faithful of Fredonian agents. Uh, sorry, Grolsch, old bean. Our Prime Minister is Scotch, and he's just given permission for your extraordinary rendition through Prestwick Airport. <laughs> Vera, you were going to put a bullet in my brain. Please do it now. No. Then give me the gun. If you like, but there are no bullets in it. Rudy, sanctuary, sanctuary, shelter me. Rudy raises the bedclothes. Grosch seizes a half-full vodka bottle, slides in, swigs from the bottle, then joins Rudy and Vera singing the Fredonian national anthem as loudly as they can. Over the first bars of the American national anthem, the end of which overlaps Goodbye to Sorrento, warbled on a mandolin, which overlaps the fading English voice, saying... Perhaps all the parties concerned can settle the whole business by a frank discussion. A final huge boom from the Chinese gong. Bong! That's the last play, I think, in, in, um, in this book, um, uh, which is, in fact, the uncorrected pre-publication edition, but it's been sold cheaper uh, than... Um, um, <laughs> quite a lot of them have been bound, even though they've got some printer's errors in them. And, and I forget what the cost... Uh, well, it'll be cheaper than eventual hardback, uh, uh, which will come out in two or three weeks. Um, but um, we're also going to read something from uh, the start of Fleck. Uh, I thought I was very original in writing a modern version of Goethe's Faust. I gather there are three of them on just now in, 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 in Edinburgh um, and by different companies. Um, however, um, um, we're going to read the, the quite short prologue and anybody who knows German, uh, the, knows the Faust will, will realize that uh, Though I don't know German myself, I've only read translations of Faust. A, a lot of different English translations of Faust. Um, the, uh, this introduction is very, fairly strictly based upon Goethe's um, version. Uh, the play, as it develops, sub subsequently becomes very, very different. But um, we're just um, reading the start of it. Um, I've mislaid my copy. Oh, wait, no. Oh, uh, well, uh, I'll sit very close to you. <laughs> um, no, um, let's let's remember you. You start telling. Okay. Yes. <laughs> we, we just remember the order in which the angels. Yes. Uh, who's first? I'm second. I'm second. I'm second. Yes. Uh, you, yes, 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 yes. Right, right. We'll get there. <clears throat> Grand organ chords of religious music in the style of Bach or Handel. A blue curtain rises to show a dawn sky with sun rising. Three angels stand before the sun and chant. You start. Oh. Right, sir. 
The sun star, glorious as ever, bathes all his worlds in golden light, still rolling round the galaxy, mid nebulae as vast and bright. Planets and moons attend his glory, reflect his beams in sparkling ray, while angels heralding this story announce the dawning of a day. Swift, unimaginably swift, the mighty earth is rolling too, from darkness of profoundest night to skies celestially blue, while winds contest with ocean waves or drive them on like fleeing crowds against the base of granite cliffs whose summits penetrate the clouds. Storm clouds whose snow and hail and rains in stream and cataract pour down to flood and irrigate the plains, ensuring growth is nature's crown, that seeds take root and creatures feed from humble worm to beast of prey, while angels heralding the Lord announce the dawning of his day. The sun has disappeared upward, leaving the sky clear blue. Nick approaches jauntily through the audience, wearing black jeans and scarlet sweater. He mounts the stage as the angels look upward, raising their arms. The angels look upward to the light while reciting the final verse in unison, as Nick bends his knees in servile caricature of a courtly bow, raising an arm to the source of light in mocking imitation of the angels. And, and sounding, sounding colour glows and leaps twixt star and sun and world and moon. God is the harmony that keeps all nature's orchestra in tune. The spotlight swings on to The spot swings out onto Nick. He jumps up, standing to attention and giving a Nazi salute before speaking with the bonhomie of an experienced gatecrasher. Good Lord, it's wonderful to have you here. And God Almighty, uh, since you condescend to let me supervise this bad wee globe, I'm about to greet you as a long-lost friend, my oldest chum. Forgive my slang these days, but since expulsion from your heavenly choir, I've never seen one thing deserving praise in jargon your angelic mobs admire. Creation is perhaps a giant joke that pleases you, not me. I deal with folk, men, women, shit in short. Why give these clods intelligence? A gift that damned immortal gods like me, your deputy. Men would be less bad without the sciences that make them glad to torture, kill themselves, their planet too. Do you like nothing here? Nothing. The whole mess gars me grew. Do you know Fleck? Uh, Professor Fleck? Oh, yes. Uh, a muddled soul. I laugh at his distress. A mammy's boy, a teacher's pet, a swat who hoped the girls would find him fascinating for knowing what the other lads did not. That did not fetch them. Missing youthful pleasures, he groped in books for intellectual treasures, till master of three sciences or four, he finds professoring a deadly bore and knows his overstimulated brain has done no good and left him half insane. Fleck is unhappy like all honest folk who do not think the world a giant joke and find the prize they work for hard and long is worthless and has put them in the wrong. Aye, aye, these very intellectual pains come easily to men who have no wains and wives to feed and do not hear the pleas of homeless millions dying of disease. Fleck is bewildered. Science and art are borne by those whose inner selves are almost torn apart by pains that will not let them rest until they reach the highest and the best. Oh, reach you, in fact. 
How lovely. What if I prevent that? How about it? Let me try. You tried before. In 369 BC, with Job your serpent, servant, yep, he sure fooled me. I knocked his house down, killed his children quick, stole all his money, left him poor and sick, his skin one itching scab from head to toe. Then friends arrive, appalled to see such woe, and to console him busily explain he must be wicked to deserve such pain. <laughs> Despite the evil things you let me do, that poor sap Job never lost faith in you. People with nothing else have only me. Uh, the wealthier my business, I agree. <laughs> Professor Fleck owns nothing rich and fine. I'll give him all he wants to make him mine, if you agree. Do your wicked best. Indeed I will. Lord God, I am impressed by your permissiveness. Moses talked rot when parroting his slogan, Thou shalt not. God forbids nothing. Why do folk forget the first word that you ever spoke was, Let! Let there be light! Let there be Lucifer! And the pervading brightness lets all see the brightest of your eldest sons is me. A fool. Who's licensed by your holiness? The jester of the universe, no less. Uh, forgive my levity, I must feel gay, since you are letting me make flat my play. Demon, demons like you, old Nick, I tolerate because your antics undo something worse. Those smooth routines upholding every state where management makes government a curse. Fleck keeps rich management in good repair. His well-attended academic courses turn youths into exploitable resources. Remove him from his academic chair. Dead or alive? Alive. Good and you, God. I hate tormenting ghosts. It's much more nice to toy with living souls, like pussy plays with mice. My better children. Uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. There's a wee note to <laughs> The spotlight swings back from Nick to his angels. My better children, come back to the sky and there enjoy the better things we do. Make life the loveliest form of energy that every day creates the world anew. Great Amen chords. The curtain closes, leaving Nick on stage facing the audience. I like to see the old dear dropping in when weary of his land of endless light that gave me heat stroke once. He needs old Nick, and, and toffs like him are never impolite. Thank you very much, Justin. As we do have a few minutes left, I, I believe the normal procedure is to allow questions, comments, heckles. Uh, is everybody happy with what they've heard? Nobody. Um, is a, a hand raised, yes? It's not uh, about uh, what we've just heard, but I just wondered what Alistair thought about um, his name being misspelled on the Scottish Parliament and uh, an unattributable uh, quote, which was not yours, mm -hmm. attributed to you. Um, I. I um, 
the, the spelling of the name was quite trivial, I mean, unimportant. There are about four ways, if not more, of, of spelling Alasdair, and I'm quite used to people getting them wrong in my case, uh, so it didn't matter. Uh, the, the quotation that they gave me, uh, work as if you lived in the early days of a better ma nation, I first read it, it uh, a Canadian poet, Dennis Lee, um, I found in a lengthy poem of his that won the Governor General's Prize about 25 years ago. Um, it wasn't exactly the same. I think it was work as if you were living in the early days of a better nation. So I, ch I, left, I left out a syllable and one word. But, but it's Dennis Lee's and uh, I, f I first printed it in a book of mine, the, the jacket of a book of mine, attributing it to Dennis Lee um, in small print. But people keep forgetting that. But uh, um, I, think, I think it's a, a motto that should be adopted by every nation in the world. Um, um, because only people who think that their nation is in a, a perfect state and shouldn't be greatly improved are either unusually conservative or unusually stupid. I don't say it's the same thing to me both. <laughs> you don't say it's not either. Anybody else? Any comments? Nobody? Is there? Oh, yes, there's. Hello. Um, I'm thinking of revisiting Lanark because I read it a long time ago. And I'm wondering if you've ever done that, and if so, what you think? I know, I've, I've, um, I've never reread Lanark. <laughs> in case I was tempted to try and improve it. <laughs> and, um, which can probably be done, but it would be a lengthy job, and, uh, and I'd rather write new things. But, but, but I'm very glad, of course, that other people still read it. Thank you. that does lead to the question, Auden was a perpetual reviser of his own work, and there are others as well. Do you revise your own work at all? Do you go back to things? Uh, yes, some, uh, not the novels so much. The, the um, poems and uh, plays, even, even reading out Voices in the Dark just now, I, I, I um, thought there are some words that could be dropped from that and make it run more smoothly. Um, but but, but um, uh, I suppose I revise my pictures more than anything, at least the murals, because they're very big and, and I... I keep thinking that another two years' work in this will make it much better. <laughs> I, I do have one question for you. Um, when you are writing plays and poetry, uh, it is, I presume, easier to leave the narrator uh, or your own voice out of production um, than it is when you're writing prose. Uh, yet you seem to enjoy writing the part of the narrator so very much, um, particularly in Poor Things, which I enjoyed phenomenally. Um, I wondered if you could remark on the differences, if that is appealing to you in any way, if it matters if you do it one way or the other, if you prefer one over the other. And the second part of my question is, do you like and or ever study Vladimir Nabokov? 
Oh yeah, uh, sorry. Um, no, uh, um, I haven't read all of Nabokov's work, but but um, um, his novel *Pale Fire* I greatly enjoyed and gave me some ideas, which I pinched, of course. Uh, and 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 and, and, and um, but um, but but um, from the point of um, the first poems I ever wrote, or rather, the, I used. To, <laughs> I used to be on, able only to write poems, I suppose, in what was nearly my own voice, because uh, I, I could only I could only write um, I could I could <laughs> the only emotion that that moved me to try and write in verse about them were were emotions of loss. It, <laughs> it was only when no woman loved me, or <clears throat> or one who did had got rid of me, uh, um, uh, that that uh, I it was only out of a strong sense of uh, of loss. That I I I I, I, I can write, which is why my first book of verse and longest was called Old Negatives. Um, um, but uh, and, and at the end of that, I thought I couldn't write. Uh, I, I didn't. Since I was now happily married, uh, and I've managed to keep that up ever since, uh, um, I thought, oh well, no more no more poetry, um, except light verse, perhaps for fun. But but um, but but. Um, I, f I found other I found other things did occur to me, and and uh, and then I found that I I got ideas for poems that are p perhaps rather light verse, but in which I was um, using using rhyme and rhythm to <laughs> to write about different things that I'd never thought of handling before, and uh, and, and when it came to the Fleck play, I, I found I could do it in rhyming couplets, which. Made it terser. Um, I think I don't know if that's the answer. Um, I, I don't. I don't. Sorry, could you see that again? <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm not sure I'm making myself very clear, but I wondered if you thought that the writing of plays left more for the audience or the reader to put into the work, not always because you have quite a bit going on <laughs> of various narrative levels, but whether that was a uh, perhaps a way to, to bring in your audience more than in, in poetry uh, or prose, or perhaps prose is an easier way than playwriting and poetry, I'm not sure. Uh, the um, the difficulty is I uh, I'm very unplanned. Um, whenever I've finished a novel in the past, I've quite honestly said I don't think I'm going to write any more because I've absolutely no ideas for any more. This is not a case of what they call writer's block. Uh, you know, it sounds like constipation in which you've got a lot of stuff in you you can't squeeze out. Uh, and and, um, and it's just that when I um, when I when I didn't have ideas for writing any more, I didn't think there were any ideas in me to come out. But um, other ideas came quite unexpectedly. I never expected to write any more plays um, after um, I had a spell in the in the late 60s and 70s when plays I wrote were taken and commissioned. And, um, uh, and but um, that that stopped. What started me playwriting again was that I was working in. A building in Glasgow called the Oran Moor, where they uh, had a lunchtime theatre, a play, a pie, the pint. And as I, as I, as I heard to these, uh, as these went on, and I realised, 
ah, if I wrote a play, I could probably get it put on here. And then I, uh, as a result, I got ideas for um, four more plays. And then uh, an idea I'd had for years about my interest in Goethe's Faust uh, um, came to the notion of, um, of writing it in, uh, 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 in a modern version. Um, at, at present, I have no more ideas for plays, no more ideas for fiction, uh, no more ideas for poetry. Uh, that, uh, um, <laughs> I mean, that, uh, uh, I know. I'm, uh, I mean, something might happen. Uh, you know, the, uh, an idea might come, and I, I, uh, I'm almost very pleased when that happens. But, but, but <laughs> well, uh, I, I am at the moment translating, um, writing, and translating country and western songs for a Gaelic television program, and I'm always reminded of the the songwriter who was asked which comes first, the music or the, the words or the music, and his answer was the telephone call. <laughs> I suspect that Alistair would also respond to the telephone call if it was required. I'd actually, I think we'd need to finish, and if I could get a poor rag on rather more there than there are here, I, I would like to end with a wee question myself, Alistair, which is, I find it hard to believe that you and I have known each other 40 years, but uh, the calendar tells me we have. I don't think you've aged in any way. Uh, you know, you're still as, as bright and sparky a person, but one recognises the reality. Are you aware of any sense of you know, who you are and the age you're at when it comes to creativity? Is, is there a continuum that is really hard to break down, or are you aware now that you're an older man than you were? When you started out? Oh, yes. <laughs> in, in Horribly terms, aware. In terms of your writing, though, does it, do you feel it's reflected in your writing? Uh, well, I know, um, yes, uh, um, I, no I noticed years ago that, that um, every everything I wrote seemed to involve a central character who was slightly older than me. Um, uh, in, uh, I finished Lanark when I was middle-aged, but uh, in, in the final chapter, he's uh, about 20 years older than that and is about to die. And, um, and so, since then, since then um, yes, the, la the last book of stories I wrote was called The End of Their Tethers, um, <laughs> because it was all about um, men of about my own age who wouldn't, going to, who wouldn't be going to live much longer. <laughs> I, uh, I think that's why I'm not likely to get any more ideas for any interesting development. <laughs> <laughs> well, just in case you do, I think maybe we should leave you with time to reflect on the possibilities. And uh, I should thank very much Alistair for what he's given us this evening. Thank Estrid for coming in on the spot of the moment. Um, and then thank, uh, and thank Angus Nicholson for being God. <laughs> And growth. We should also thank the Edinburgh International Book Festival for putting this, among other marvellous events, on, and thank you for being a great audience. <laughs>